Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on fast crude, crumbling. WTI down over 6% so far this week and over 11% this month. The rest of the commodity complex sliding as well. What signal is this sending about the health of the economy and the markets? We'll break that down. Plus, time to shine. Is this beaten down chip stock about to get its moment in the sun? The big reveal. The praise this company is getting from the competition and the move it's having this week. And later, the chart master all revved up about Tesla. We will hear why he says this battleground EV stock is still a buy even after a 60% move higher this year. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Carter Worth of Worth Charting. And we start off with a crude awakening for the energy markets. Oil prices closing out the month with more losses. WTI down more than 11% since the start of May. That's its worst month since November 2021. And it hasn't just been energy under pressure. From livestock to grains to metals, prices were falling across the board last month. So what's the impact of these moves? Consumer prices? grew at their slowest clip in two years in April. How will further decreases in potential disinflation filter into the economy and the markets? Ostensibly, it could be seen as a good thing. Glass half full, glass half empty, uh, right? Or a, a bad thing if it means disinflation. I mean, I, I, we just posted the lean hogs data. So, um, no, I, I think <laughs> if you look at wheat, for example, we're at two and a half year lows. We're well through uh, pre-Russia, Ukraine invasion, obviously the biggest wheat producers in the world right there. And if you look at lumber, if you look at all those things you said, very, uh, very important for uh, at least PPI, um, whether it's CPI, you know, we're going to get into that. You actually had some great CPI numbers out of Europe this morning, continues a, a pretty good run. France this morning, uh, Germany earlier in the week. And, and those dynamics, are, I, I think, are important. In other words, the reopening trade has taken longer uh, than anybody thought in a lot of different ways, including supply chain and including the commodity space. And as we say all the time, the best thing for higher commodity prices is higher commodity prices. And and I think when you're talking about wheat and when you're talking about lumber uh, and you're talking about base commodities, there's a lot you can do with it. When it comes to oil, and I'm excited for this conversation with Paul Sankey, because I I think you're trading a lot on China sentiment. I think you're trading a lot uh, on the dynamics around where true demand is. Any manufacturing uh, data we're getting from any part of the world, certainly China last night, but certainly the data here, regional PMIs. We had a terrible China PMI this morning, uh, which tells you that, hey, we're in a manufacturing recession. That's not particularly good for for, for energy, even though um, I think longer term, and I think China's going to surprise in the second half of the year. But that that was today. It was all about weak data, um, pushing down oil, which was already vulnerable technically. And if you look at where crude is now, it's it's very vulnerable. The overall picture is a picture of economies slowing, whether it be in the United States or around the world, um, which could mean good things in terms of a Fed pause, but it could also mean bad things in terms of how, how you interpret that as a signal for the for economies in general, right? Sure, so, I mean, so, less demand is right. people act, you know, doing. So things. I've seen I've seen a lot of things floating around the web that really make sense. So Tim uh, said a bunch of them. You had warmer weather. You have OPEC. Every time OPEC cuts, you should sell oil. They're always no one adheres to the cuts. So you, it's counterintuitive. You think everyone always out pumps, out supplies. So they so they say they're going to cut, but none of the members ever cut. 
That's number two or three or four. Uh, reduced demand as rates move higher, there's a reduced demand to hold inventories. So people have to flood the market with it incentivizes you to drill and pull it out and put it immediately on the market. As rates move higher, treasuries become more attractive. So if you think about people who are not people that are doing the business, but people that are investing in the commodity space now have competition. They don't buy the commodity anymore. They buy treasuries instead. So you're saying to sell oil in I'm buy saying that treasuries. there's a reason. Yeah. So I'm saying that there's a reason. There's a host of reasons that might not be the best reason, mm-hmm. but that's one of the major reasons. I thought we would be range bound, but it seems like we can't get our head above in, uh, in WTI crude anymore. So there's a lot of sort of noisy things, right? right? In that economic data from today, we had some very, very different kind of noises, right? We had the job Jones. openings number, which was Pretty very, good. very high. I don't know if it's just a one-off, but I mean, that was a surprisingly big number, which doesn't, doesn't bode well for trying to get wage inflation under control. On the other hand, you had the PMI number also, and I don't know if it's a one-off sort of the other direction. Um, that's sort of a counter argument. And so... This sort of makes me think, all right, should the Fed pause, not, not, not pivot, but pause? Because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about if they're still not where they need to go, then they should keep going. However, I don't know that there is harm to pausing now. It doesn't, I don't think that they're, they will lose credibility as being hawkish, being concerned about inflation. Cutting would lose but, credibility. Yes, totally agree oh, with yeah. that. Yeah, Cutting yeah. would lose credibility. Yeah pausing and saying, let's look, um, and I, I, because there is sort of noisy data out there. Yeah. Well, two Fed officials came out today arguing for a pause, right. Harker and Jefferson. Jefferson. Um, Carter, you brought along, of course, some charts. So what do you see for crude? I did, yes. Hello, team. So, well, you know, my hunch is there's not a lot of downside. Uh, just before we get to it, it would be worth stating that adjusted for inflation, uh, a barrel of crude is the same level it was in 1985. Um, but let's look at the chart and just figure out how much downside, perspective downside there might be. We're at very well-defined levels. And even as we were to breach this sort of uh, sort of 66, 65 where we are now, the downside really isn't much more than 63 to, to my eye. And so I'm thinking, actually, you want to be contrarian here. We are now down 50%. Everyone loved it. After the invasion of Ukraine, 130 a barrel, we're down some 50%, and everyone hates it now. I think, as is quite often the case, take the road less traveled. Okay. You heard it from the chart master. Our next guest was a long-term oil bull who's now gone bearish on the commodity. He made the switch about six weeks ago when crude was near its 2023 high. Let's bring in Paul Sankey. He's the president and lead analyst of Sankey Research. Um, so you're bearish now. You still see trading opportunities among oil equities. So we'll get to that in a minute. But where do you see oil going at this point? Well, at the moment, it's really all about the Sunday OPEC meeting. And I think we're concerned about that because we feel there's a, some kind of uh, tension between Russia and Saudi, who are the, the two key mega players, really around Asia and the fact that Russia is now taking Saudi market share quite aggressively in Asia with heavily discounted barrels. So I'm not sure, based on two previous meetings that you referenced, where they really didn't cut, they said they would and they didn't, that they can bring out much from the hat at this meeting. And as I've said, there's a tail risk that we could go to a worst case scenario, which would be a March 2020 market share war, you know, where at the worst possible moment in the market, Saudi actually cranked up to its all time high production levels to make the point to Russia that they needed to cut as much as Saudi did. So, you know, I think people aren't talking about a tail risk of a potential blow up at this meeting. 
So let me ask something about the U.S. SPR, right? So they had stopped. They had said they would buy below 70, I believe. And then I think they technically maybe ran out of money. Possibly next week they'll have some money. Do you expect them to be in there? Will that make a difference in the market? Is that enough to change the dynamic at all? Right. So there was last year there was an active selling program that was driven by the administration and it was right? big. It was a million barrels a day at peak. It was a massive dampener on prices, direct downward pressure on, on prices. And as you know, controversially, a lot of it got ended, ended up being exported to China, which drove people nuts. This year, there was a, a congressionally mandated sale for budget reasons that we've completed. And then, and they were powerless to do anything about that, essentially, but they managed to, to reduce its overall scale. And now we're in theory, we should be buying, but they announced 3 million barrels. So if you remember at one time, they were saying 60 million barrel releases, and, you know, big numbers. This rebuild, which is in the second half, is just 3 million. And um, it won't make much difference, quite frankly. They would have to step it up a lot to really make a difference. I want to get to your oil equity picks. You upgraded Valero. So you like Valero? Uh, I like Valero. I'm not sure we upgraded it. Oh, okay. But uh, I was just with the outgoing CEO, um, Joe Gordo, who's retiring. He's done an absolutely fantastic job. He's got a fantastic management team behind him. Mm -hmm. Long term, I love Valero. You know, it's got a great um, partnership with Darling in the, in the biodiesel area, renewable diesel area. Uh, it leads in that area for getting the feedstocks, which is the most important thing with Darling. And as a result, yeah, it's a great company. Right here, nobody wants to buy refining into a recession. And I think that the toughest thing is this recession isn't coming. You know, people have been calling for it now for a year and a half, and it, it doesn't seem to show up. What we see in oil is the industrial economy in China here, trucking real heavy parts of the economy are all slowing big time. And that's pulling down diesel and distillate prices, which is concerning. But the service part of the Chinese economy, jet travel, uh, individual consumption, the U.S. economy is whatever it is, 70 to 80 percent consumption. All of that service stuff keeps running, and that's why, you know, economically we kind of remain on track. But you can't help but think that the primary economy is going to bleed through eventually to the consumer. Right. One of the things that was doing the rounds on Twitter was uh, Las Vegas gaming revenues. I don't know if you saw them for May, but they're down pretty hard. They had a huge march, and they're coming down quite a lot, which I think is a great indicator of where we're struggling to really call it, which is the consumer and when the consumer slows down big time. We always ask you for a pair trade, and you like to, to short what <laughs> well, hot. And so obviously AI and AI-related things are hot. Well, if you recall, last time I came on, I said short NVIDIA long Oxy, which was the, the worst trade I've yeah. made on this program. And in fact, the first losing trade I've made you on meant, this you program. You meant buy NVIDIA. I meant, I meant buy. <laughs> I, would, I would say that we got out of the way pretty quickly because I had hedge fund guys telling me, you're insane, you're going to get run over. This is a bubble. You know, don't, don't, don't go near the NVIDIA course. So we backed right off. Um, in terms of what we saw in the debt, the, the, the debt ceiling negotiation, you saw Joe Manchin manage to get through a permitting agreement, which is a big deal, particularly for the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which mm -hmm. takes gas out of the Marcellus, the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, and releases it into the entire U.S. Eastern, Eastern Seaboard. We think that's great for range, uh, amongst others. We're a little bit worried about another big play, which would be EQT, but we're worried that this Biden administration, FTC, might put a, a, a block on a deal that they're doing. So we're worried about being long EQT. So the long side is long range. 
And then on the short side, we're picking uh, gassy Permian names that will struggle once this pipeline comes on because it's going to further pressure gas prices oh, in so the Permian. It's a little bit involved. After, after this, making the yeah, after years of the uh, literally since 2020, every trade. I think we led you down that that scary path in the past, but uh, yeah, you remember it all starts with uh, with Exxon long long Exxon short Apple yeah. in August yeah. 2020. Yeah, some outstanding calls. Right. Well, not the Apple bad. side. I should have I should have realized yeah, the Apple side was wrong. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, I, don't worry about. It's all good. So the trade is, is long Marcellus, short Permian. Okay. Paul, great. An oily one. A gassy one. And gassy. Yeah. Paul Sankey. Thanks, guys. Uh, Tim. Speaking of gassy, um, <laughs> no, uh, I, I think if you look at kind of midstream and, and the gas area, EQT, which had numbers, I know Paul likes this name too, it, it's, it's a free cash flow story. And part of my view that you want to be investing more in the companies, not necessarily the commodity and why there's a lot of cyclicality in the commodity, but you know, they, they beat on significantly tighter cash flow, uh, excuse me, higher cash flow on, on less CapEx spend. And you're going to make $2 billion alone in free cash flow. The yield on that is north of 8%. And it's it's very well insulated. In other words, I think you can own a lot of these high yielders, and I think they're going to continue to pay you. Um, I, I think there's a lot of interesting dynamics in the macro of oil, um, but, the, but the reality is it's about supply. When you've really seen the market fall out of bed, I recognize what these headlines are, are all about. There's been such a lack of investment in the, in the, in the space. So that's my secular view um, and why I think there's support here. All right. Meantime, the Fed releasing its latest beige book earlier this afternoon. This is some Fed officials hinted pausing rate hikes at the central bank's next meeting. Steve Leisman's got all the details and the odds have gone down, right, Steve? Yeah, sharply, uh, Melissa. The odds of that June rate hike after those two Fed officials, Fed officials suggest today they favored skipping a rate hike at the upcoming meeting. Let's start with them. Fed Governor Philip Jefferson Important list, too, because he's President Biden's nominee to be the vice chairman, said skipping a rate hike at a coming meeting would allow the committee to see more data. But he cautioned the skip is not a pause and said it was possible the Fed would come back at another meeting and hike again after the skip. He noted the effects of you got bank credit tightening on the way and the 500 basis points of Fed rate hikes. They didn't know what they were yet and may not yet have been fully felt in the economy. Then comes Philly Fed President Patrick Harker. He echoed Jefferson's comments, but he was actually a bit more direct, saying, I'm in the camp increasingly coming into this meeting thinking that we really should skip. But Harker said the jobs data on Friday could change his mind. Well, guess what? The futures market changed its mind after the two spoke. What was a 70% probability of a rate hike in June flipped on a dime, became a roughly 64% probability for no change at all. Jefferson Harker's remarks Pretty much in line with recent comments of Fed Chair Jay Powell, who was more neutral about the June meeting, but several other Fed officials, they've been more hawkish, said they're inclined to continue hiking. So all this sets up a lot of uncertainty for investors about the June decision. And I think the best way to think about it is going to be determined by the latest data getting up to that meeting and probably some considerable debate around the Fed table, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, it's uncertainty around June, but it's uncertainty after June, too, which the market certainly doesn't like. It, it, it's almost better off, I think, if, if they just hiked in June and said, OK, that's it now, as opposed to saying we're going to pause. And maybe out there we're going to see another one. I'm curious, though, in terms of the jolts data, how do you think that's interpreted versus the jobs data? Yeah, so the jolts data is a little bit older. It did go the wrong way on the Fed. It did suggest that uh, job openings were back on the way up. By the way, it was commensurate with a decline in the unemployment rate. So at least that made some sense. You had some job tightening or, or, or better job, a better job market in the month of April. We'll get the May data, and I think the May data will 
uh, basically supersede the uh, the April data. So we're looking, though. The thing is, Melissa, if, if the consensus is right, it's 188,000. That's still pretty strong for, for an economy that produces, or a country that produces, say, 100,000, 90,000 new workers every, every month. So, and the unemployment rate is still 3.5%. So the Fed is still going to want some more um, uh, loosening of the job market before it's satisfied inflation is under control. And just to give you a number, Melissa, it's, a, it's about, you're right, it's about a 65%, 66% probability of a hike in July. So all they've done is said, skip, not pause. Right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. It's amazing that we just spent, what, 14 minutes talking about the disinflation of the commodities complex, which Not touches consumers market. and businesses, and yet it's all about the jobs market and how tight that is still for the Fed. Yeah, I think the Fed, well, everything that the Fed looks at is always in the rearview mirror anyway. So I, I think they would, I, I do believe a skip is a pause, right? It's not a pivot. So right. I don't know why we're arguing over that language, but a they should. It's a pause, but a pause, in, in, uh, I see yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So, it's a, right. so they should, we're not, no one's saying we're pivoting anymore at this point. They should skip. But Karen has always pointed this out. The Fed, if the market's going to give you that extra raise, then maybe you want to just take it. But I think everything that we've been arguing about, the, the top is just six to 10 different stocks that have kept the market up. The Fed should not be confused that the market is overwhelmingly bullish right now. It's a handful of names. And I think sometimes they won't admit it, but they get jaded by the overall market being up versus Things a handful of tech stocks. Under the hood. And yeah. they should skip or pause or however you want to say. The most important ingredient, though, in inflation is the job market. And if you look at where uh, uh, the unemployment, excuse me, the job job openings to unemployment rate is we're about 1.79. It was 1.67. So that's jobs for people looking. Uh, the natural rate is 0.8. So we're two times higher than where the Fed should see um, comfort. And, and I just think they have to keep they have to keep moving. And I you know I see 20 bips between now and July, and I think that's right. We've got a news alert on J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon's deposition. Amy Javers has got the details. Amen. Melissa, that's right. CNBC has obtained a copy of that deposition. Remember, Jamie Dimon went in to be deposed by lawyers back on Friday. Uh, we have now learned what he said in that deposition in this case involving allegations that J.P. Morgan contributed to Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes by not kicking him out of the bank and doing more to alert uh, law enforcement at the time. Broadly here, Melissa, this is a 418-page document. We're going through it in real time, so we're doing some real-time reporting here. But broadly, uh, what Jamie Dimon says in this deposition is that uh, he was unaware of debates inside the bank as early as 2006 about whether or not it was appropriate to keep Jeffrey Epstein as a client. Says he wasn't involved in any of the decisions around keeping Jeffrey Epstein or not keeping him in the bank. Uh, one of the issues here is ultimately who was in charge of that decision. And I want to show you a graphic here, our first graphic, uh, in which he points to the former general counsel, Stephen Cutler. Uh, Jamie Dimon says, Mr. Cutler had the ultimate authority to kick him out if he thought it had gone that far. He was delegating reputational decisions to somebody else. So we have Jamie Dimon saying that the general counsel was the guy in charge of kicking someone out of the bank. But we also now learn in this deposition there was an email from Stephen Cutler, the general counsel, back in 2011, in which Cutler suggests he doesn't think that Jeffrey Epstein should remain in the bank. Cutler says, I would like to put it and him behind us, not a person we should do business with, 
period, is the email from Stephen Cutler to Mary Erdos, a powerful executive inside the bank back in 2011. So the question is, if that's how Cutler felt in 2011, how come Epstein remained a client of the bank for several years? We don't get a clear answer to that in this deposition. Also want to bring you, we're getting texts and emails now from a lot of the participants in this case in real time, Melissa. And I want to give you uh, one additional statement that we just got seconds ago from J.P. Morgan about all this. They say, uh, and just reading now, had the firm believed he was engaged in an ongoing sex trafficking operation, Epstein would not have been retained as a client. In hindsight, we regret he was ever a client. So that's the statement now from J.P. Morgan in the wake of this deposition being released to us. Melissa, back over to you. It, it seems, Eamon, that since Cutler sent that email to Mary Erdos, that there is an implication that Mary Erdos ultimately had the power to, to kick Jeffrey Epstein out of right. the bank? There's a lot of wrangling in this deposition about who had the ultimate authority. Was it Cutler? Was it Erdos? Was it Jess Staley, who was a close personal friend of Epstein and spent time at Epstein's private island? Who was it who ultimately had the authority? Or, or was it Jamie Dimon himself? Dimon says it was Cutler, but we see in the email that Cutler at least was, had the opinion that Epstein shouldn't be in the bank. Now, did he officially recommend or officially ban Epstein from the bank? That seems mm -hmm. to be the nuance here. Uh, Erdos has testified that she didn't believe it was her authority to kick anybody out of the bank or to report this to anybody. So the question here is, you know, we got all sides sort of pointing fingers at all sides in terms of who had the responsibility to do this. Clearly, J.P. Morgan now feels like they should have done it at the time. Uh, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers, uh, this would be a perfect use case for AI to go through that 400-plus-page <laughs> deposition. About the same thing. Um, Karen, at what point is this a blowback onto J.P. Morgan, the stock? Well, to the, to the stock, I don't yeah. know. Obviously, it's not great. You don't want to be involved in this in any way. But there's a lot of unanswered questions here. So we see that email from Cutler to Erdos. We don't know Erdos' response. Um, we don't know where Jess Staley was at that time. I'm not sure the timeline of when he left and when that actually happened. I do think it's quite clear if this has been apparent to them, why would they need this as a client? Right. Right? And I also, I don't know, it sort of feels like extortion. They're trying, I, I don't understand how it is J.P. Morgan's fault, if that's what they're, if that's what they're, I guess, implying, that uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein committed the acts that he committed. Uh, so. I don't know. I think it should. I, I'm surprised, actually, they haven't settled in the past. They've settled things that they really believe they had the upper hand or were right. But ultimately, it just wasn't worth it. This obviously isn't great for them. Coming up, we've got some after hours action in Salesforce and C3 AI. Shares are on the move as the results filter in the details in the quarters next. And speaking of earnings, Capri sinking after results this morning, hitting levels not seen in more than two years. The news that had investors checking out. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on C3AI. Shares sharply lower in the after hours despite a beat on the top and the bottom lines. A conference call is happening right now. Steve Kovac is standing by with the number. Steve. Hey there, Melissa. Yeah, this is one of the year's AI darlings. Shares have tripled more than tripled so far this year, but falling significantly after hours, down about 18% now. Despite those beats on the top and bottom line, stock was down even before the results crossed, just four minutes before the conference call started at 5 p.m. A quick look at the results here. Loss per share coming in at 13 cents versus the 17 cents adjusted. That's a beat. Revenue also a beat, $72.4 million versus $71.3 million expected. Now, one thing that could be pressuring shares, the lighter than expected full year guidance with a range of 200 $95 million to $320 million. Also, this is coming just a couple weeks after C3AI raised its guidance for this fiscal fourth quarter. Shares were down more than 8% today ahead of the report, down now about 18%. Conference call underway now, and we'll get back to you with any more headlines, Melissa. Steve, thanks. Steve Kovac, uh, C3AI with one of the best tickers on Wall Street these days. <laughs> yeah, what do they do? <laughs> it doesn't matter what they do. Their ticker is AI. Carter, how does this chart look? Sure. Yeah, AI will do it. Anyway, so what we know is before the long weekend, the stock closed at 32.94, and of course, where is it indicated now? Post earnings, back to where it started. My hunch is, uh, if you're long and you've now suffered a bit, stay. But for new money, buy here uh, should hold. Hmm. All right, let's get to Salesforce now. The cloud company also posting beats, seeing shares lower. Uh, the company's conference call is underway. Julia Borson has a look at the quarter. Julia. Well, Melissa, Salesforce shares, they are down in after hours trading despite the stock beating expectations on both the top and bottom lines. And there are a couple of things that could be contributing to the stock falling. It's now down nearly 5%. Now, capital expenditures topped expectations, $243 million up about 36% from the year-ago CapEx quarter. The company also raised its full-year earnings guidance and reaffirmed revenue guidance, so investors could be disappointed that it didn't raise that top-line outlook despite the 11% revenue growth in the quarter. On the call, which is happening right now, CEO Mark Benioff talking about the progress the company has made in terms of margins, and he did raise margin guidance, also stressing the progress made with Salesforce's AI engine called Einstein GPT, also talking about the progress of Slack GPT, saying there's much more to come in terms of Slack and generative AI. He talked a bit about how Salesforce he expects will be a trusted partner for companies as they navigate what will be the transformative power of generative AI. He also announced they're investing $250 million in an AI-focused venture fund. Be sure to tune in to Mad Money tonight, where Jim Cramer will be speaking to Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. Melissa? Julia, thanks. Julia Borston, if they had reported last week, it might be a completely different story. Today, in general, was not a good day for AI, AI appreciation. They probably mentioned, it sounds like they mentioned AI several times on that, their That used to work call. last week. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and this week, not so much. Yeah, well, once he, if you look at the stock chart, it broke out of a declining trend line back in February. I guess that was around the time when he got rid of the activists that wanted wanted seats on the board or, or so. I'm, I'm roughly... And they had a big quarter, I think. Yep, and they had a big quarter to follow. So that that's what got them off his, off his scent. And they broke out of the decline trend line in February. It seems like they have a little bit more, but he's just been gobbling up uh, resistance on the chart. 
and he's outperformed everything in the space. He's a machine, never bet against him, sort of like a Tesla, mm-hmm. right? But sort of like a Musk. And I don't know if he's extended here and if he's going to play the AI card as we go down that path, to your point, how you opened up the segment. But I think if you've been fortunate enough to gain this market share from February and market appreciation from February, maybe you want to sell it and take a look. Yeah, I think this stock's a function of where it's come from. I mean, it's up 76% off of that that same CPI low that we always talk about that marked a lot of bottoms out there. But, uh, you know, people that say the market's been five stocks, it hasn't been. I mean, CRM's outperformed the S&P by 65% from that point. So uh, the things that were disappointing, I'm guessing, for the street here are CPRO, so CRM Pro came in a little bit lighter than expected. And this is really a higher margin business. Their operating margin, uh, despite the reaffirming of the top line for 24, um, was kind of in line. And, and after this kind of a move, I think that's what we get back to. Um, I, you know, software as a group has traded phenomenally well. Uh, and I think it will probably, uh, in a weaker rate environment, I don't, you're not chasing this one. I mean, I wouldn't be chasing this one, um, but I do think you have to be careful. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. First world problems. One luxury retailer cutting its forecast as the U.S. consumer passes on fancy handbags and shoes. So what's next for the space in the face of rising costs? Plus, tech's been on a tear, and the AI surge is on everyone's mind. But our next guest warns, investors chasing the trade may be in for some pain. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Buzzkill on Capri Holdings, the stock hitting its lowest level since December 2020. The parent company of Michael Kors, Versace, and Jimmy Choo said revenues fell 10% in its fiscal fourth quarter, cut its current year sales forecast. It also said weaker demand for luxury items will persist in the United States uh, this summer. This sounds familiar. I feel like they did this before, Karen. Yes, they in did February. do it before. They did do it before, and they said we're going to do it again next quarter. That's the thing that I actually find, I mean, it, w- it wasn't a good quarter by any stretch. I want to say that, right? And some of this, this commentary about North America and, mm-hmm. and being slower. Also, China reopened has not been as good as hoped, and that would have benefited them. So there's a lot not to like. However, the big miss on wholesale, they told us that was coming. Yeah. And so it's sort of amazing to me that it's down a lot again on the same news on a company that has a mid-single-digit PE at this point, a good balance sheet. So it's kind of amazing for it to get hit so hard twice on the same news. But I have to say this grand experiment of trying to create a luxury conglomerate that would then trade at a luxury conglomerate price has not worked at all. And I know John Idol's been there a long time. He believes it's going to work. He bought $10 million worth of stock about two months ago. I can't remember exactly, but somewhere in the high 30s, 39-ish or so, um, knowing that this quarter had this going on. So it's kind of perplexing to me, but I get people just saying, you know what, 
uh, not only checking out, just literally abandoning the cart and just just leaving. I mean, the luxury conglomerate idea. I mean, that's LBMH. Yeah, which right? is that's which right. has been on a tear. It's, it's not it's like it doesn't work. It just it's right. not and that, working. And that's it's why people have thought this was yeah. going to work. And and I look towards the CEO buying $10 billion worth of stock a couple of weeks before the quarter ended as some sort of insight to where the stock was going to go. Uh, we've seen other stocks in the same se sector and space do dramatically better. And when you look at the sales of Versace and Jimmy Choo, they were great. When you look at the revenue, that was a large part due to maybe uh, F FX. It could have been a, a healthy amount. Yes, they could have been a healthy amount. Are you guys holding but margins, this? I am. Yeah, I mean, I power. Oh. Think about it. I okay. power pitched this as a high teenager, uh -huh. and and it doesn't mean you stick with. But it. I've traded it. I've traded it okay. over the over the course of the ups and downs. But I really was convicted. I thought we were going to see a All pop right. off of her. There's one yeah. person why should we should consult. Carter, quickly, the chart on Capri. He loves Jimmy Choo's. It's, it's <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. I mean, this is a business that doesn't even need to exist. It's terrible. Oh, wow. Wow. All right. You heard it there. Should have called him last no, night. I, I, no. <laughs> Coming up, <laughs> check yourself before you tech yourself. Our next guest is warning of an AI overload and tech's big rally. Dan Suzuki of Richard Bernstein joins us next to lay out why you shouldn't chase the trade before learning the ins and outs. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on delinquency rates in the commercial real estate industry. Diana Oleg's got the details. Diana. Well, Melissa, the CMBS delinquency rate shot up in May to a 14-month high driven by, of course, office. It's the biggest jump since June of 2020, the start of the pandemic. And this according to new numbers just given to us by TREP. Office delinquencies jumped 125 basis points from April to 4.02%, the highest since 2018. TREP notes that sublease space is at or near record highs due to a big drop in demand from big tech. Just yesterday, Google announced it was offering up 1.4 million square feet in Northern California for sublease. Overall, not just office, but the CMBS total delinquency rate shot up 53 basis points to 3.62%. The rate is the highest level since March 2022. To put that in perspective, the all-time high was in July 2012, which was nearly matched by the COVID high in June 2020 at 10%. Melissa? How should we think about this in relationship to defaults, Diana? Well, delinquencies turn into defaults at points. It depends on how they're going to work out these loans, what they're going to do to sell off the properties. We know that the uh, property values are significantly lower, especially in office, over 50% lower than they were uh, pre-pandemic. All right, Diana, thanks. Diana Olick. Uh, Karen, you've been in mm -hmm. some office rates, so how do you take a look at these numbers? Well, they're not surprising, right? And we know that the financing rates that were used to underpin these investments were zero-ish. Yeah. You know, you can round to that. Clearly, there's something very different now. We haven't yet seen the shakeout. It's starting a little. You're seeing people literally handing the keys back to the banks, and we're seeing big property, like a, a collections of big properties, starting to move, even in New York City, a little bit. To me, that's very near the bottom. Before, there's a freeze before that where, you know, bids and offers are just too far apart. Right. But then sellers get desperate. They have to do something or they have to just turn over the keys, which is happening. Okay. 
Let's turn now to big tech. Our next guest warns the AI-driven rally is getting too extreme. Dan Suzuki is a deputy chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, great to have you with us. You've been a long-time tech bear, <laughs> long-suffering tech bear. Sure, I mean, this it, year, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. harder and harder to make that case, no, with, a, with the AI rally. Listen, I mean, clearly tech has had a big rebound, but I think I've looked at all these historical rebounds that you get after big drawdowns, and it's always a mirror image of what went down, right? So it doesn't tell you anything about what's going to happen going forward. In fact, it's, a, it's almost a zero correlation with what that future leadership is going to look like. So I wouldn't read too much into it. This is just kind of how things go. Um, and the way I look at it from a macro perspective, this isn't going to be groundbreaking, but it's either going to get worse or it's going to get better. The economy. And the economy, yeah. profits, and if things get worse, I think people are underestimating their cyclicality because what's going to happen? Companies are going to invest less. They're going to lay off workers, have less software licenses. People are going to buy less expensive gadgets, right? But the other scenario uh, is that things get better. And in a scenario where things get better, why would you pay so much? for these companies where you can have companies that, can, that are more cyclical, that are trading at dirt cheap valuations, that are going to see their earnings go up a lot more. So I think in either scenario, tech has a risk of catching down in a bad scenario or catching or, or, or have other things will catch up. In, in a- Some would say, though, that in the first scenario where things are, are you know, heading lower, that this area of tech offers you secular growth, not cyclical growth, that, that companies need to invest a certain amount in AI, otherwise they are left behind. And that's why so many people are piling in. What do you say? Do you think that's well, just all hogwash? Well, people, I think people jump from narrative to narrative, right? I mean, up until uh, a couple months ago, AI wasn't really on the radar for people. It was all these other reasons that you have to own tech. And so now there's this narrow hope that you got to own AI. But think about what's, what's the difference between AI and Internet? Wasn't Internet a bigger boom? Yet had you invested in 2000, these were terrible investments. And and tech investing overall fell like 17% in that collapse of liquidity and credit during that period. So I'm wildly bullish on technology as an application. I, I literally, if there's a gadget out there, I probably have it. I love the technology. I think the applications will be huge. That doesn't mean it's a good investment. So, so what are you wildly bullish on? I know I'm looking at your notes and it says you're, you're focused on long duration assets, which to me actually kind of sounds like high multiple tech, right? I mean, you're actually playing for growth out in the future. Uh, I know that's not what you're saying because you're telling us that that's not your position. So talk about where you really think there are opportunities. It sounds like you think they're, you know, value is your friend and that's the place to chase. Well, I think getting back to duration, I think, you know, the, I think the rates are going to go down because I think the economy, it looks like, is, is slowing down. And I think that's going to bring rates down with it. In that scenario, would you rather own cyclical expensive duration, which is those the, the, the high growth tech names, or do you want to own counter cyclical cheap duration, which is, I think, what you get when you get long-term treasuries. So I do like duration here, uh, not just duration broadly, but I do like that form of duration. Um, but then what else do we like? I mean, general, generally, we're in, a, we're in an earnings recession and liquidity is tightening. That's a recipe for you know, owning higher quality assets right now. So we are a little bit more cautious on things. We want to own you know, things that are going to be less sensitive to a slowing cycle. The one thing area that's different that we've talked about on the show, which is also, uh, you know, hasn't been working recently is China. I think China is the one area of the world where profits are accelerating. I mean, people forget that when the, the entire global economy went to zero during COVID and, and things got less bad, you know, that was huge for profits. I think that's kind of where they are today. They've had, not only have they had zero COVID, they had a property crisis and then over-regulation of their industries. All those things are going the other direction. I think that's, gonna, that's one of the things that's underestimated here. 
Dan, great to see you in person. Thanks, Dan guys. Suzuki, RBA Advisors. Uh, Carter Braxton Worth, which chart looks better or worse, uh, China or the AI complex? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so one is very, very bad, China, KWEB, for instance. And the question is, is it right to bottom fish? I suspect so. Versus the AI phenomenon, which is crowded, overloved, and very risky. Okay. Coming up, value hunting in the chip sector, the stock that might now be a big value play in the space. Next and later, the chart masters all bold up on Tesla now while he sees the stock driving even higher. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Intel up nearly 5% today after the company's CFO said its data center division is starting to turn the corner. The company also getting a vote of confidence from rival NVIDIA, whose CEO said he was open to partnering with Intel. He also said they got the test chip and it looks pretty good. So could this move be the beginning of a big catch up? Tim, you're hoping so. I am. Yeah, I've traded around Intel. Uh, in fact, I, you know, when it had that almost 40 percent run from mid-February to, to the end of March, I actually faded some of that, um, got back in around 29. I, you know, I think Intel long term is, is, you know, it's a fix it story. Um, the fact that they've been out there talking, they were talking about their AI, their Falcon chip, which is going to be out by 2025. By then, NVIDIA's going to have a new chip out. Like the, the whole it's just they are running. They are running behind and they are trying to catch up fast. But it, I think the positioning back to that's often how I also think about some of these trades, at least later on after I've done the fundamental analysis. I think people are so underweight Intel here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am sure uh, any good news and people will be chasing it here. Um, so, yeah, I think you can own it. If that headline doesn't take place, Intel continues to slide lower. You mean the tie-up with NVIDIA? Yeah, I, I think that anything that NVIDIA touches or, or, or uh, says that they're going to touch is going to wind up having, having the Midas touch. But Intel has been such an underperformer until we get to that phase where you start buying the laggards, which I don't see us entering that phase. I think either the uh, top heaviness of the market continues or the whole market actually subsides. So I don't, I don't necessarily think, I think Tim's wise to trade around his Intel position. I can't see it coming back into favor with the rest of the community. All right, well, option traders are betting on even more upside for Intel. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly has the action. Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Well, today we saw a lot of option trading volume in Intel options with about four times the amount of calls traded versus puts. And what was pretty telling is is a lot of the action today was in the front month, June at the money calls, the 32 strike, and they're priced around 97 cents right now, but we saw over uh, 15,000 contracts trade and the open interest is around 5,000. So there's obviously gonna be uh, sentiments follow through uh, to the upside given today's action. Kevin, thank you. Kevin Kelly from Options Action. Tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the chart master says it is time to put the pedal to the metal on Tesla. What he is seeing in the charts next on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla coming off a strong month, now up 65% in 2023. And the chartmaster sees a buying opportunity in this battleground EV name. Let's turn to Carter for the thesis. Carter. Right. So what we have here, uh, by my work, right, is a stock that is making a turn. Uh, We can look at a couple charts. First, two long-term charts to put it in perspective. The first chart you'll see here, there's nothing. 
those are actually perfectly parallel mathematical lines. Let's look at the second chart. What that is, is Tesla. Tesla has adhered to these well-defined trends up and down, and now we are just now reaching the upper band of the downtrend channel in effect since the peak. My hunch is we're gonna push through. Let's look at two short-term charts. The first, whether you annotate it this way as I have or not, it's what a reversal formation looks like. Doesn't matter whether you call it a cup and handle. We have a stock that's putting in a bottom. Now, if you would, look at the final iteration. And what we have here, of course, is a well-defined downtrend line. And to my eye, we're gonna punch higher, as high as 225 or thereabouts. Day-to-day -day relative strength is good. In fact, I would pair this against a short in the queues where you have such stretch names as Apple, NVIDIA, and others. Hmm. Um, you know, it's funny, Carter, because the first chart, I thought it looked like Tesla would test the middle line of that downward channel as opposed to go higher. But the, the, the next two charts made sense to me. How do we know that that it doesn't go down and stay we in don't. that channel that has it stayed in so long? We, we don't. Um, okay. That's what the judgment, <laughs> judgment is a critical faculty. That's the judgment. We shall see. What do you see in that chart? I'm still, I'm still long it. I got long uh, at, at around the bottom. I got, I bought more at around the top. So net, net, I'm still in good positioning here. Um, I think to make it really easy for the person playing uh, at home is you want to stick around. It's got to be above the 200-day moving average, which is right here, slightly below $200, and big fat round numbers. You want to see it hold this little breakout because everyone's talking about this being a very good AI play mm -hmm. with autonomous taxis and the like. It's a battery play. It's an energy play. Ford's coming to use their charging play. It's the premium name. So it's not a car company, just a car company. It's an energy company. It's a charging company. It's an everything. It's an everything, it's an everything company spoken Steve's like a true bang bull. in the table. Yeah, nothing more bullish than a bulled up bull. Well, I, I, I like his, his hedge. I, I think if you look at Q's, you're trading at a 75 RSI. If you look at the semis, by the way, they're, they're over 80 and haven't been this high outside of November 21, which is a big top. I just think you've had such a major run in the entire group um, that I, I think we're due for a bit of a pullback. But um, in terms of where that, I agree with you, Melissa. I, I kind of saw that chart and that downward channel. I saw us at the upper end of a downward trend, and it means it's supposed to sell down. What do I know? Up Judgment next. Day. Exactly. <laughs> to each his own. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Carter Braxton Worth. If you're along the queues, take measures. Trim, reduce, or sell. Tim Seymour. Staples, I think, still have some room to move lower, but there are places where you've had some extreme moves. And Budweiser, the Brazilian beer company, I love to say that bothers people, but they're owned by Brazilians now, um, has had a massive pullback. And I think actually you start nibbling on this one because beer sales have consolidated. Chairwoman. Yes. So Lululemon, I've been waiting to buy the company for a while, but I'm going to actually wait one more day, which is their earnings tomorrow night. I'll look at it after that. All right, Steve Grasso. This one's going to make Carter happy, and hopefully it makes me happier. Tesla, final trade. All right. Thank you so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 